so I, I don't really have any idea how to follow that up uh, other than to say thank you, Sam, for bearing your heart. Um, I think there are a whole lot of people. Uh, I know there are several songs from this season that I will always remember from the season, uh, including the very first Sunday that you weren't able to be with us. Uh, we sang this song about resurrection and about the power over death. And uh, your, your parents were there, and they were singing, and we're singing, and we're all crying. <laughs> and, um, if there's an upside uh, to the season that we've been in, it's that I think we get to have some of these songs that took on special different meanings for us. Um, so, well done. And now, for something different. <laughs> I, I've decided, after a whole lot of deliberation, a whole lot of uh, thinking about it, I've come to the conclusion that social media might not actually be that good of a thing. I know. Who knew? Who, who saw that coming? I mean, it does do some things really, really well. For instance, uh, it's really good uh, at polarizing us as a nation, as a people around politics and religion. Super good at that, right? Uh, it's really good at giving us the opportunity to fight with relatives and loved ones uh, over matters that we probably actually mostly agree on. Uh, but social media allows us to find that one little thing that we don't and just you know, accelerate that to the point that we're bickering over it. And I think most importantly, it gives us an opportunity, a platform, a, a billboard, where we can share whatever outlandish kind of crazy idea we have about anything with no fear of any sort of retribution or repercussion. It's awesome. It's like the worst parts of family Thanksgiving dinner all in one website, you know, where we can fight about just about anything. But I don't want to throw it under the bus too much because it's good for a couple of things. Uh, my, my cousin this week, for instance, uh, went to, to Poland. Uh, he's going there to be available just to serve people as they come across the border. And I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't see the pictures uh, if it wasn't for Facebook. I think that has value. But my favorite thing about Facebook is, you know, where else can we share really ridiculous memes? with each other. I mean, I think that's probably the most valuable piece about it. If it weren't for, for Facebook, we'd have to like go to a website or something and find them. And it's not as much fun as you know being surprised. These little surprise nuggets that happen. You're scrolling through and you're like, oh, my crazy aunt thinks that. <laughs> Thank you for that little <laughs> surprise. So it's a place to find some of these unexpected laughs. And I think as we said, laughter is a good thing. So this is one that I found particularly funny. Facebook is like the fridge. If you're bored, you keep opening it and closing it every few minutes to see if there's something good in it. It's funny, because it's true, right? I mean, you find yourself going like you're just off it and you're like, oh, I should just check again. I'm like, no, nothing has changed. Or this one, uh, I, I'm afraid I haven't found many memes that are Christian memes that are, that are very good or very funny. In fact, they're kind of cheesy. Like this is literally scripture that no one could serve both God and money. And yet somehow somebody found a way to make that really, really corny, right? Or, or this one, it's, it's funny, but it's also a little bit scary. Just follow your heart. False. The heart is deceitful above all things. Follow Jesus. Oh, Dwight. <laughs> it's cheesy, and even more scary is this one. Who is your master? Share, God, keep scrolling, Satan. I mean, that one checks a lot of boxes, honestly. <laughs> like, right? It's scary. It's terse. It cap, it's in all caps, so it sounds like you're shouting the entire time you're reading it. It's biblically inaccurate, and even better, you feel like you're compelled to share it. Like, if you love God, you're going to repost this, right? And if you love Satan, keep scrolling. <laughs> I came across a meme this last week as I was getting prepared uh, to do this talk, and it's about money. And so I thought it was rather apropos. It said this, God doesn't care about how much money you have. He cares about what you do with it. And I thought, oh, that's good. I mean, it's simple. It's to the point. Uh, it's all in capital letters, so it still sounds a little shouty. <laughs> but for the most part, it's not that judgy. I think you're good behind that. But then I thought, you know, is it actually true? I mean, 
I think we could all get behind the idea that, that God cares about what we do with the resources that he's given us, but does God really not care how much money we have? I don't know. So, fortunately, uh, Scripture has a whole lot to say on this subject. And today we're going to continue in this series, Follow Me, Lent Through the Luke of Lens, looking at what Jesus had to say in the book of Luke about money. And frankly, he had a whole lot to say. In this series, we've been looking at these subjects, like what, what does Jesus have to say about issues like the Holy Spirit, of what it means to really take up your cross and follow Jesus. And we've learned that it's a bigger call, and sometimes you give it credit for being. And the book of Luke has a whole lot to say about money. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn with us uh, to Luke chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, we would recommend going to Bible.com and downloading the free Bible app. It's great. It's the reading plan app that we've been using throughout this series. It's great. So starting with Luke chapter 1, we see this theme of money and power and possessions right out of the gates, right out of the beginning of the Jesus story. The angel comes to Mary and tells her she's going to have a baby. And that this baby's going to be the Messiah. This baby's going to be the king. In response, Mary sings this song that we've come to know as the Magnificat, right? And in this song, in this response are these words. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. That, that's chock full of power language, of rich and poor language. That's the kind of language we'll see Jesus use a lot later in the story. In fact, I would argue that these themes of money and possessions, of rich, of poor, of haves and have-nots, runs through the entire book. In fact, in almost every chapter of the book, you see those themes emerge. Luke 2, Jesus is born, and he's born into the most modest, humble, poorest conditions possible. And the very first people he's introduced to, introduced to the king of the universe, are peasants, shepherds, the lowest among society. John the Baptist in chapter 3 is out baptizing people and proclaiming that the kingdom is coming, that the Messiah will soon come. And the people in response say, what should we do? And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came and said, what should we do? And he said, don't collect any more money than you're required to. Then some soldiers came and said, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort, extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. It's interesting, all of those are about money. What, what do we do to prepare for the Messiah who is coming? It's about giving and holding loosely the possessions and the money that we have. It's all about the haves and the have-nots. Jesus, in John 4, as we've talked about a couple of times in this series, it's his inaugural address. He says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Luke talks about money more than any other gospel book. And in fact, he uses stronger language than any other gospel book, or in fact, any other book, perhaps in the New Testament, when he talks about money. We see Jesus saying things like, blessed are the poor. Blessed apparently just because they're poor. <laughs> Note, he doesn't say like, blessed are the poor if they are faithful. Blessed are the poor if they're righteous. No, it's not qualified at all. And he extends these warnings, these woes to the rich, where he says, woe to you wealthy, to you well fed. And again, he doesn't qualify. He doesn't say, woe to you wealthy if you're evil, or if you don't use your, your wealth wisely. No, it appears that Jesus blesses the poor simply by virtue of the fact that they're poor. Of the fact that they're poor and issues the this, this sternest warnings to the rich simply by virtue of their wealth. What do you do with that? It's out of character. What, what do you do with that? And then the stories that you see emerge as you read through the book, these themes and these stories are complicated. They're tricky. 
Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? It's a long one. I'm going to read it right from Scripture, and I think you'll see that it, it starts to like stir up these feelings. Like, what is that about? How do we even wrestle with that? Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linens and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Ugh. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Why? What merited that, that we don't see anything? He, he dies, and he immediately is carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, in hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. So, so this rich man is in, in hell, but we're not given any other reason than he is rich. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let, me, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. A little bit of foreshadowing. There, I think. It sure seems when, when you read a passage like this, I mean, it creates tension in me, does it for you? It sure seems like when you read a passage like this that God does care about how much money we have, and apparently he doesn't like rich people, right? In fact, the book of Luke is sort of the go-to source for a lot of preachers when they want to talk about the evils of money. If you take this verse out of context, this story out of context, you could easily get there, but is that really Jesus' point? That to be poor is good and to be rich is bad. I think when you zoom back out and you look at the book as a whole, and we see all these different themes, all these different teachings, a very different theme emerges. It's a place to write this in your notes. God cares about the poor. God cares about the poor. To say to a poor person, God doesn't care about how much money you have, that's only good news to a rich person. <laughs> to say to the beggar at the gate, God doesn't care how much money you have. He cares what you do with it. That's not good news. To say to a single mom who doesn't know where next month's rent check is coming from, God doesn't care where you're, how much money you have. That's not helpful. You can't read Luke. You can't read any of these stories and see the profound care that Jesus has for the poor. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is anti-rich, or, or sometimes is is presented in a lot of these versions of Luke's Jesus. Luke, the author of this book in Acts, is not anti-rich. In fact, what does church history identify as Luke's profession? What did he do professionally? Anybody know? Doctor, Doctor beloved physician, exactly. A, a good career then as it is now. Luke was probably a pretty wealthy man. And his writing style indicates that he attended the best schools and received some of the best Training. Who's he writing to? 
in this in the book of Acts. Theophilus, Chris does this, and I wondered why. It is kind of fun, actually, to ask for questions. Theophilus, which we don't know a whole lot about, but we know know that Theophilus is not a Hebrew name. It's Greek. And he calls him most excellent Theophilus, which means he would have been a title reserved for Roman officials or people of very high social standing. Luke is writing to the rich. Kevin DeYoung, pastor of Christ Community Church, says this. Luke was not a poor man writing to poor people that together they might denounce the rich. It's much closer to the truth to say Luke was a rich man writing to another rich man and the people like him in order to show them, the rich, how to truly follow Jesus. Interesting. So what do we do with that? Well, I think, like I said, I think we take stories like this and statements like this and we can learn that God really does care about the poor and... (laughs) God cares about the wealthy. While these Luke stories and Jesus' parables contain some rich, wealthy villains, they also contain some amazing rich people, wealthy people who respond well to Jesus' call, to his invitation, even with their finances. Back in chapter 5, you remember Jesus is choosing his disciples. He chooses this rich tax collector named Levi. And Levi responds well. He leaves everything. In fact, he throws a big party, invites all of his other tax collector friends. And then he leaves everything to follow Jesus. Chapter 8 lists this this group of wealthy women, which in and of itself is a strange thing to have included in the gospel accounts. But this this group of eight, or this group of wealthy women who support support the ministry of their own means. The good Samaritan is also probably the rich Samaritan, if you read the story. This is a man of means who chose to use his means for good. And the real hero of the prodigal son story isn't the prodigal son. It's the benevolent, gracious father who models grace, who models forgiveness, who models the very character of our father, God. Luke is not written as a denunciation of the rich. It's written as an invitation to the rich. And Jesus knows that it might even be harder for those people, the people that have means, who feel like they're self-sufficient to see their need for God. One author I read said something like this, and I, I wish I remembered who actually wrote it, but he said, if your life is good, if you have the things you need, why would you want to change it? At that point, change becomes a threat, not an invitation. Like it's written as an invitation to the rich but also as a warning to the rich. God cares deeply for the wealthy, and so he wants to communicate to them, and I think to many of us, be careful. Woe to you. One of the themes you see throughout Jesus' teaching on money is that wealth wants to be worshipped. There's a place to write that down. Wealth wants to be worshipped. What does it mean to worship something? It means to, to place worth on something, right? To say, you are worthy, of my time and my talents and my trust and my future. And I think the reality for many of us, and often for me, is that for many of us, we we honestly evaluate our calendars and our priorities and even our anxieties. I think we see that we often ascribe exactly that kind of worth to money, to our careers. In Luke 12, Jesus says, then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. 
Then he goes on to tell, tell this story, this cautionary parable of a rich man whose harvest was so abundant. He had such a great harvest that he couldn't contain it all in the barns that he had. He said, oh no, what am I gonna do? I can't put all this grain in my barns. So I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my perfectly good barns and build new barns so I can fit all of it in there. I'll store it all up for myself and I can retire, sit back, live the good life. And God says, you fool. What you don't know is you're gonna die tonight. And then what happens to everything you've stored up? Who gets everything that's stored up? What will your legacy be? I'm sure some of you have seen these, uh, the Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan Kenobi commercials right now for Expedia, where he's walking around, he's going, we love stuff. Stuff is great. We all want the latest stuff. And you think, oh, this is going the right direction. And at the very end of the commercial, he goes, when you get to the end of your life, are you going to get the stuff you didn't buy or the places you didn't go? I was like, oh, it's so close to on. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's so close to on. I think we have this sense that, this, that collecting more and more stuff just can't lead us to the kind of happiness we want, but it's brilliant marketing. <laughs> Jesus' point in this story isn't that we shouldn't have harvests. It isn't that we shouldn't plan ahead and store up and be wise in our planning. I think his point was that at no point in this story does this man even consider helping others with his windfall. This incredible blessing that came from God. Think of all the good that he could have done. Think of the jobs that he could have created. Nowhere in the story do you see this man praise God, give credit to God, rely on God. This man is totally reliant on his own success. His trust is in his plan, in his money, and in his savings, and it's his downfall. Chris, in week one, had this phrase that I love. He said, Christians grow as you go, and I love that. I think one of the things that this story illustrates is that as we grow, we can grow in grace or we can grow in greed. As we experience windfalls, as we experience successes and bountiful harvests, we can either grow and recognize that all we have is a grace-filled gift from God or we can continue to be like self-impressed, trusting our 401ks, monitoring our stock markets, buying more and more stuff or going to more and more places. So what do we do with that? Well, Jesus tells another cautionary parable of another rich man you might remember. In Luke 18, a rich ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do? I get it. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life, to not be this guy, right? And Jesus basically says, well, you know, uh, the Ten Commandments, love God and respect your parents and don't murder people. And he says, yeah, I've done that my whole life. And Jesus says to him, you still like one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. There's tension in that, right? I don't think, it's not that Jesus doesn't want him to be wealthy. It's that Jesus knows that wealth wants to be worshipped. And this man is worshipping wealth. He placed a higher worth, a higher value, a higher trust in his future, in his money, in his plan, and walked away from the kingdom of God. God absolutely cares about the poor and he wants his followers to care the same way that he does. But he also cares about the wealthy and wants them to worship him even in the relationship with their wealth. 
So maybe a more accurate meme would have been something like this. God doesn't care how much money you have. He cares what you do with it and what it does with you. I think the point that Jesus is making here, that he's trying to make to this young man, is generosity is the antidote to wealth worship. When we see our wealth, even our relative wealth, and I know it's easy for us to say, like, oh, I'm not that wealthy, I'm not that wealthy. But you watch the images coming out of Ukraine. <laughs> you watch the images of, of the people that we saw in Juarez. We are friends. We are doing great. <laughs> when we begin to see even our relative wealth as a grace-filled gift from God, when we see ourselves as the hands and feet of Christ, as God's primary way of bringing his good news and his care to the poor around us, when we give to God and to the people that matter to him, what we're doing is we're holding up all that we have and saying to God, thank you for these gifts. Thank you for this abundance that you have given us. Use them for your purposes. This is another dangerous statement. But I wonder if God would only take from us that which he needs to, to make that statement true. And for this rich young ruler, it was everything. I don't know what it would be for me. Jesus said, and we saw this in that horrible meme with the floating money, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. We've all heard it. You can't serve both God and money. And I would add this, which is dangerous because you're not supposed to add things to what Jesus said. <laughs> but here I go. I would add that you can have money and serve God, but you can't serve money and have God. That's an important distinction. This is not that God is anti-rich or wants everyone to be poor, but if you serve money, you won't have God. This isn't just some mental exercise, like, yeah, I don't serve money. That's so easy to say, but when you look at your bank account, your checking account, your spending habits, when you, when you ask your friends and family, when you look at what your calendar says, about where you spend the majority of your time and your effort and your anxiety, what does it mean to serve money? And do you see service reflected in those patterns? I think it's a question that all of us have to wrestle with. Kevin DeYoung again said these words, the New Testament is not anti-rich, but it's emphatically anti-status quo when it comes to the way rich people typically view and use their money, how you handle your money has everything to do with following Jesus. We as followers of Christ are invited to view money very differently than our culture, than the status quo, and that is scary for us. And it was scary for these first believers, these first followers who want, you want us to do what now? That doesn't even make any sense. It's why Jesus in Luke 12 says this, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like Jesus is saying, where we place our treasure, where we place our investment and our money, we are also in part placing our heart. So back to that original meme that I found. I never thought I'd talk about so much about memes. I'm not that into memes, actually. I think maybe that this would not be nearly as memorable, maybe not as meme-y, but it might more, be more accurate to say something like this. God does care about how much money you have because God knows the crushing weight 
of poverty, what the crushing weight of poverty can do to a person, and knows that wealth can be an amazing tool of grace and justice and restoration and reconciliation. Or it could be a stumbling block that keeps you from experiencing the kingdom of God. God cares about what you do with the time and treasure and talent that we have because they're a reflection of where we've placed our hearts. And God also knows that money has a tendency to steal our affections and our dependence and our hope and ultimately our worship. Because ultimately God cares about us, rich and poor, and wants us to love him and love others. That's a really bad meme. (laughs) You can't read it even if it was big. But I think it's more accurate, even if it's not super pithy. And I think maybe that's the point. Jesus calls us to love God and love others and how we treat money. He said that was the most important commandment, and that commandment applies to money as well. How do we love God and love money, love God and love others with the resources we have? We invite you to do that this Lent. The series is called Lent Through the Lens of Luke, and one of the practices that Christians have practiced for millennia is this idea of almsgiving. It goes back all the way before Christ to Jewish traditions. They saw the three pillars of piety, we're almsgiving, fasting, and prayer. And so we're doing fasting, we're doing prayer. And in almsgiving, we are saying we want to give intentionally to the poor. Give intentionally to the people who have what we don't have, who don't have what we have. It's an extending of the love of Christ through our giving to them. It's seeing the needs of others and helping to meet those needs with our God-given, grace-filled money and possessions. It's choosing to see the beggar at the gate. Choosing to see the widow and the orphan, and responding as Christ would respond. During Lent, we're inviting you to give, as we said earlier, to Emmanuel Children's Home in Juarez, this amazing facility with whom we've been working literally for decades, is daily doing exactly this call of Christ. We're inviting you to join them by giving, by sponsoring, by going to the home. We want to give sacrificially to meet the needs of others in the name of Christ. But it isn't easy. It isn't intuitive. As DeYoung said, it's emphatically anti-status quo to use your money this way. And yet we believe it's part of what Jesus was talking about when he said these words that are our memory verse. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily to follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit their very soul? As we wrap up, I want to look back just briefly at that, that rich ruler story. The guy wants to follow Jesus. He's saying, what do I need to do? And you see Jesus' heart. Jesus wants to be followed. He wants to show him the way, but Jesus drops this bombshell. says, sell everything you have, give to the poor. He says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm guessing at that point, his original audience when they heard Jesus say this, or something like, oh man, this guy, what, what's his deal? He speaks in riddles. What he's asking us to do is impossible, and he seems to hate rich people. And I think that's probably how many audiences today receive Jesus. What's with this guy? What he's asking us to do is impossible. We've got bills to pay. We have responsibilities to live up to. It's not reasonable. I can't do it. Verse 26 says, Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what's impossible with man is possible with God. 
What's impossible with man is possible with God. This sort of radical, counterintuitive, anti-status quo lifestyle is not possible of our own strength. It's only possible with God. It's only possible with the Spirit of God making that a reality in our lives. It's why Jesus doesn't say, arrive with me. He says, follow me. I am that way. I am that truth. I am that life. Follow me and I will show you. I will take you there. It starts with one step. What's your next step? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you chose to come in such an unusual way and demonstrate for us and teach us about such an unusual upside-down kingdom. And 2,000 years later, we're still trying to wrestle with what does this mean for us? How do we live this out faithfully? Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would take these words and in these moments, reveal to each of us where we need to take a next step. I know that many, hundreds of children at the Children's Home are sponsored. We thank you for that incredible outpouring. And there are others for whom this is a brand new thing. God, I pray you draw new people in this amazing ministry. And we know that we're not all called to do that. There are substantive somethings for each and every one of us. So God, in this moment, wherever people are, I pray that you would reveal to them a way in which they could take that next step of saying, God, everything I have, I want to be yours. Take what you need to take in order for that to be true. But God, that's a bold and scary ask. So we ask for you to empower it. We ask for you to give us the courage to do that, to offer up all of ourselves in trust of you and in worship of you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.